You know, Jay, it's weird. Domino has been mercenarying around for as long as Cable, but he has government agents coming after him like every other week, and she mostly just gets ignored. Is she just more likable? Miles, most people are more likable than Cable. But no, Domino's been the target of at least one government task force of her own. Were they S.H.I.E.L.D., like Cable's fan club? Nah, just FBI. Fewer letters, fewer pouches, you know. Well, what did they want Domino for? Was she... Was she an X-File? I'm pretty sure Marvel didn't have that license. No, Domino stopped a bank robbery single-handedly without superpowers. Wait, they wanted to arrest her for stopping a crime? Wanted to arrest. A dude named Halloween Jack pulled her out of the way and into the year 2099. What was he up to there? Oh, well, see, he worked for a company that had brainwashed its employees into thinking they were the Norse gods, complete with corresponding powers. What?! I'm Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 377 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to yet another 90s miniseries, but this time about a character who we don't get to see in the spotlight very often. And as a result, know relatively little about... Yes, indeed, we are going to learn about Domino today. You know, Domino. I feel like we should be drinking wine for this. Oh, yeah. You know, there are a lot of podcasts that just drink every time they record, and I've tried that when I've guessed it on other podcasts. It's gone okay. I mean, it depends on what kind of podcast you are, what kind of, you know, podcasting you do, and in in what degree of moderation you're drinking. Like, I've I've... Yeah, had a drink while recording before, but I don't think I could record this show drunk. Yeah, I, I do definitely remember guesting on a show and having a tall boy, high ABV IPA that I was trying to keep up with the much larger than me hosts by by drinking all of, and I got a little a uh, little sloppy by the end there. Ah, oh, buddy, I'm kind of a lightweight, a little bit. But you know who's not Domino. So what's her deal? Okay, so Domino was a Rob Liefeld creation from New Mutants number 98. Uh, she made her first appearance alongside Deadpool and Gideon, and is by far and away the best of those three. Domino is a mysterious ex-mercenary with deadly combat skills. Wait, when you say ex-mercenary, do you mean EX or just X? Uh, well, both, I guess. I mean, I guess mainly EX, because she doesn't really do mercenary work anymore at this point. She also has a love of both Pouches and X-Force's leader, Cable. Lucky convergence there. And speaking of luck, she has mutant luck powers that are almost always described as things having a habit of falling into place for her, which is weird, because aren't dominoes known for how unprecisely they fall? No, no, dominoes are the thing you can set up a long string of complicatedly hit one of and have them all knock each other down in order. Well, I mean, yes, but, like, when they fall, they, they fall kind of sloppily to the side. Maybe I was just setting dominoes up wrong. I don't know. Things falling into place implies, like, you know, clicking snugly into a designated slot to me. Yeah, I think we've had pretty ex- different experiences with dominoes. Oh, I think I really suck at dominoes, Jay. I mean, there's dominoes the game, and there's dominoes setting them up in order to knock them over. 
Oh, well, actually, I think I suck at both. That's all right. Unlucky at dominoes, lucky at, I don't know, beard growing, podcasting. Explaining. Explaining. Anyway, for a while, Domino was held captive by the villainous Mr. Tolliver. Mr. Tolliver being, of course, uh, Cable's kid from the future who was literally disguised by a trench coat and fedora. And, you know, a false face, but, but still, trench coat and fedora. Classic. During that time, she was also secretly replaced by the shape-shifting copycat, at least until Cable found the real Domino freed her from imprisonment and copycat fucked off and ended up getting killed. Since then, Domino has been the fun-loving but competent wine mom of X-Force. And we still don't know much at all about her. A fact that this miniseries will do relatively little to change. That brings us to... Domino Number 1, Rise and Fall, written by Ben Robb, penciled by David Perrin, inked by Harry Candelario, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. We open the issue with a character who sounds like he's gonna be really important, and who I believe has not appeared anywhere outside of this miniseries, and that is Milo Thurman. If his name sounds familiar, that's because Domino's last name is also Thurman, for reasons that we'll uh, get to a little bit later. So, as the series begins, he is, he's a non-mutant genius. He is, has basically worked out a system for flawlessly predicting the future by studying a lot of history, and Milo is being held prisoner in a shady government facility somewhere in the United States. He also loves monologuing, and he has this rambly list of various fallen leaders talking about how empires inevitably fall at the beginning— you know, Hitler, Mussolini, etc., and he also includes Magneto— Xavier, and Onslaught. And I really like it when superhero comics do this, when they have their superhero plot elements, be it characters or events or whatever, just shown standing side by side with the history that we know. It makes the world feel a lot more, I don't know, lived in, complete. Now, not only is he in solitary confinement, but he is is subject to yet another form of cruel and unusual punishment. Namely, his imprisonment is overseen by Henry Peter Gyrick, better known as the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe. Aw, oh, that asshole. Yeah, his job is basically to try to control various super beings, be a real jackass about it, and just be grumpy and unlikable. And he's very good at that. But he also uses, in, in this issue, a turn of phrase which, Miles, you got kind of preoccupied with. Yeah, so at one point he says, what in the Sam Hill? And, like, we've heard that before, I've heard that before, but something about taking notes while reading a comic where someone says, what in the Sam Hill, made me wonder, where does that come from? Why do people say that? And so I looked it up, and it turns out... Nobody knows for sure. There are a bunch of different possibilities, and so I hear Jay and listeners will tell you of some of my favorites. The obvious one is that it might be derived from Samael, which is the, a name for the devil in an early 1800s opera. That name has also been used for various demons, including in the first Silent Hill uh, game, not movie. So, I don't know, maybe it's that. Kind of cool. I just like it because demonic shit is metal, and that's fun. It could also be named after the owner of an old Arizona store that had all kinds of weird stuff for sale in it, so the phrase came to describe anything odd or unusual that you might find at Sam Hill's store. Okay. 
Or it could be named after, and here's probably my favorite, a surveyor from Michigan in the late 1800s who swore so much and so creatively that his name became a substitute for profanity that someone would otherwise utter. I aspire to that kind of legacy. Right? Anyway, that's not very related to the Domino miniseries, but uh, I thought it was interesting. I that that was a fun that was a fun diversion and and you know we kind of need all the fun we can get in this cuz there's just not that much in the series. There are definite highlights. There are definite good moments. Don't get me wrong. I am excited to expound upon them. But you're right. This mini series is a little bit dull and unfortunately it's writer Ben Robb I remember a lot of his Excalibur being similarly a little bit dull. So we'll see how Excalibur goes. It's been been many years, but this miniseries is fine. Yeah, I feel like it it, it gets, you know, whatever the great equivalent of present is. <laughs> Harsh. I mean, that's no, no, I'm I am I'm giving it credit for for having put in an appearance. You know, uh, okay, I'll replace harsh with uh, perhaps that is damning with faint praise, but it is true. The fact that this is a readable comic that I did not regret reading and, like, found some fun stuff in, you know, that's really all you need. Like, yes, it's great when a comic is excellent, when it is superlative, but this one is fine, and fine is actually genuinely fine. Like, I'm glad this comic exists. I'm glad we're talking about it. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be terribly disappointed if I were subscribing to it and reading it as it were coming out or something like that. In the landscape where you have the number of comics available to you that you have available, I don't feel like there's a ton of reason to go back and read it. But we did, and so we will discuss it further. We will. But you know, that's a good point that you just brought up. Like, there's so much out there, and at this point in Marvel history, there are specifically so many miniseries out there. And I feel like when you have enough miniseries that you and I are covering them, like frickin' every third or fourth episode, it seems, you kind of have to stand out in some way to be memorable amid the crowd. This one, I think, does not do a great job of doing so, despite being about a character who I like a great deal. Yeah, likewise. Domino is a lot of fun. I think Milo could have been a lot of fun if he'd had space to be developed further. What little developed he is, we find that he spends most of his days reading Dante's Inferno, or at least he does that until Lady Deathstrike shows up to kidnap him. Shall we go a little bit into who who Lady Deathstrike is, what, what her deal is? Because she has not shown up in an X-book in a very long time. Yes, indeed. Lady Deathstrike is the badass name chosen by Yuriko Oyama when she became a killer cyborg to hunt down Wolverine to steal his adamantium because... She felt that the Weapon X project stole it from her dad, Lord Darkwind, who was a Daredevil guy. Anyway, point is, she is a cyborg from Japan. Uh, One of her cyborg powers is that her fingers can turn into very long, very sharp claws. She is quite good at things like murder and assassination, and doesn't really tend to be the most ethical person in the world. She is also one of the leaders of the Reavers. Right, they're a group of cyborg jerks, typically very anti-mutant, who have actually caused the X-Men a great deal of pain. They damn near wiped the team out back in the Outback era. Everyone forgets that, but the Reavers were, like, super scary. Originally, they were a handful of Hellfire club guards whom Wolverine mangled on his way into the club through the sewers, I believe, Um, and who later got themselves souped up, was it in Spiral's Body Shop? Uh, it was, yeah. I'm not sure that they were the earliest Reavers, but certainly they were there near the beginning, along with uh, characters like Bonebreaker and Skullbuster. They they use bone names in their names a lot for some reason. 
Uh, but yeah, they come from all over, but the main thing that unites all of them is they're all cyborgs, and they all hate mutants in general, and or the X-Men in particular. And Wolverine most of all, but he doesn't appear in this series, so that's not actually going to be relevant. I mean, I'd imagine Lady Deathstrike, whenever she's off-panel, is just, like, shaking her pointy-fingered fist in the air and yelling, LOGAN! Now, while all of this is going down at at, uh, Milo's unnamed prison, Domino is having an evening of debauchery at Carnival in Rio de Janeiro until she is interrupted by an attack from a fellow named Pico, whom a footnote has informed me I should remember from X-Force number 11, but I really don't. So I didn't either, and so I went back and I looked him up, and Pico, aside from this miniseries, has three appearances— X-Force 11, 13, and 14, I want to say. He was working for Tolliver when Domino was in captivity, and basically he was her warden. Like, it was his job to make sure she didn't die or escape. And when Cable and Copycat, who at the time Cable thought was Domino, uh, first showed up, Pico says, like, one thing, and then Cable just shoots Pico and Pico dies. Like, Pico has only a few lines. Mostly he is there to listen to Tolliver rant and then to get shot by Cable. Ooh, a a brief and unpleasant lot, that. Yeah, for real. Now, Pico is dressed like a jester and has various cyborg parts, so he looks a little bit different. But let's also talk about how Domino is portrayed. Because the first page that she appears on is her, with Carnival in the background, in a teeny tiny teal bikini and thigh-high boots. She's pretty sexualized. How do we feel about that? I think that's pretty consistent with her portrayal elsewhere, and she's specifically talking about this as an opportunity to let her hair down, meet scantily clad men, and have some fun. So I feel like it's narratively consistent with both the character and the environment. I completely agree, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the comic is also just enjoying the fact that it can throw some cheesecake in there and appeal to folks who like cheesecake, but that's part of who Domino is. She's always been a sexual character, she's always been hedonistic, and especially in a situation like this, of course she's going to lean into that, so that's fine. And you know, it's a sexy panel on a sexy page, well done uh, art team, well done specifically David Perrin and Harry Candelario, and I guess also uh, Joe Rosas. That teal bikini looks pretty good. The other thing that that leaves me more at peace about this is that there is some stuff later on that did kind of set off alarm bells for me. So the absence of them here feels more significant than it otherwise might. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So back to Pico. Um, Pico now, in addition to having having some cyborg stuff in his skull, has stilt man powers. In the words of Matt Murdock, thank God for stilt man. Yeah, yeah, those powers are just never not funny. I mean, they seem like they'd be genuinely super useful. Like, if I could just have extendo legs and, you know, get on top of buildings that way and be really agile and, like, be good in fights if I ever got in fights, I would love that. Depending on the level of control, based on how they're drawn, they've always struck me as really unstable. Oh, yeah, like you'd rocket up really tall and then just teeter for a second and fall the hell over? Yeah, or just end up, like, Going over and back up and over and back up, like one of those those bouncing, punching clown things. <laughs> but, you know, on long legs. There aren't enough comical cyborgs. I guess they tend to lean into tragic cyborgs, which probably works better for stories, but, you know, come on. The cyborgs in this story are pretty silly, but I don't think that's deliberate. Yeah, yeah, probably not. Now, he may have stilt 
man powers, but Domino's legs are are likewise well-armed and that her boots are full of shuriken. That seems so uncomfortable. Like, I get that her bikini is tiny enough that she's not storing anything in there aside from herself, but, like, I don't know, maybe... Oh, you know what it is? Domino spent a lot of time on X-Force and the six-pack slash wild pack before it, and you know what those teams tend to have all in and around and on their costumes? Guns? Pouches! So I bet the inside of her thigh-high boots are just pouch, 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 pouch. She has, like, everything in there. She has an entire freaking like, camper truck just in her boots. Yeah, arsenal, survival kit, etc. Well done, Domino. I'm proud of you. She's also going by Beatrice these days. That, that comes up specifically. We learned that was her name back in X-Force number 39. That was from Prosh, you know, the version of the Professor Slash ship that got a humanoid body and then flew into space and then was an X-Men forever later on. It's kind of like that time that Logan's name was revealed as Logan by Leprechauns, but this time it was a ship slash computer slash robot. What, what if they had been robot Leprechauns? I would read that. I would read the hell out of that, Jay. I'm pretty sure one of the Leprechaun movies did that. Yeah, I don't know. There are, like, so many of those things. One of them must be about a robot leprechaun. I've never seen any of them. I assume they all take place in and around Cassidy Keep. That seems right. So, just after Domino subdues Pico, Puck shows up for, with a hot tip for Domino about Department 8. Now, Puck is, of course, a member of Alpha Flight. And so he knows all of the bad stuff going on in Canada, and specifically... The tip he's got for Domino is about some guy who's scheduled for Department H termination and turns out to be Domino's one who got away. If you suspect that this may in fact be Milo Thurman, whom we met at the opening of the series, you would be correct. And that's a little weird to me because Department H is definitely Canadian and Rob definitely located the prison where Thurman was in the United States. Huh. I mean, I don't know. Department H is shady enough that I'd imagine they snuck their way into the United States at some point. Huh, they're so sneaky. They are sneaky. Can I talk about how much I love Puck? Oh, absolutely. Alpha Flight has a lot of really charming members with interesting powers and stories and stuff like that. Puck is... I don't know if he's the most interesting member of Alpha Flight, but I think he's my favorite. He's a very short man named Eugene Judd, who's bald and has a beard, and can tumble around, and he is, in fact, named after a hockey puck. Let us never forget where some of Alpha Flight's character names come from. But he's just so charming, and confident, and he's a ladies' man, but, like, in a respectful way, and he's a good friend, and he listens well, and he's very supportive, and, and I just love him a lot. And also, at least one of his costumes had a giant letter P on it in bright orange, because his name is Puck, and, uh, you know, respect. Branding is important. I feel like that, that, that's not quite the branding that he'd be shooting for with it. Uh, maybe not. I mean, certainly he was always a little sad about his height, because he was that short because he was, uh, cursed by, I don't know, someone magic. I, I forget how that works. And he's also in constant pain because of it. But, you know, still, if you're gonna go by Puck, then lean in and have your initial on your jumpsuit. But does the initial really insinuate the, the object, you know, in the minds of the people who are gonna see it? That's, that's what I was getting at. Like, if you see a giant P... Puck isn't the first place your mind's going to go. I guess he must be assuming that everybody already knows his name is Puck, and then it's just sort of a reminder, like Superman having the S on his shirt, even though I technically know it's a Kryptonian symbol. I mean, Alpha Flight was pretty famous. They're Canada's premier superhero team, and they're one of the least evil organizations in the country, most of the time, somewhat. 
Did the other team members also have giant initials on their costumes? Because that's really the only way I can see it making sense. Uh, you know, they didn't, but I think that's just because they lacked Eugene's bravado. Fair enough. So Domino heads to to the secret location um, of the prison to, to break Milo out, only to find all the guards dead, Milo's copy of the Inferno discarded on the floor, and Lady Deathstrike waiting for her. Oh, it is genuinely chilling. This works really well. There are just corpses in pools of blood and smears of blood on the wall from where they were thwacked against it and died. It actually reminds me a lot of the scene of dead guards in the hallway leading up to when you fight Cyborg Ninja in the first Metal Gear Solid game. Similarly, a very effective scene. Except we already know when Domino gets there that Lady Deathstrike has broken in and taken Milo. Well, I know, but Domino doesn't. Although, oh man, talking about Metal Gear Solid, she's wearing her own version of Solid Snake's sneaking suit. It's like, you know, a hood to cover her hair and practical shoes and weapons and pouches, but the rest of it is still pretty skimpy. It's this tight black suit against her bone-white flesh, and that doesn't seem very visually stealthy, but uh, she's lucky, so I don't know. Or maybe she's just that good. It's kind of like how Gambit's a thief who wears metal boots. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm thinking more in that direction. I'm also kind of imagining her as 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 Naked Snake and just demanding to know what everything tastes like. <laughs> For Metal Gear Solid 3? Yeah. yeah. What's it taste like? I want to eat it. <laughs> that just kind of makes me think of, what's he eat? I want to feed him! From the hologram episode of C-Lab 2021. It's like a perfect mix. It is. Captain What's-His-Name feeding Naked Snake. Oh, God, that would work really well. I'd love to see that crossover of things that probably only the two of us care about both of. You know, I'm sure someone just developed a real specific fetish. Then this podcast has done its job? Anyway, that brings us to domino number two, Death Be a Lady Tonight. This issue is uh, done by the same creative team, exactly as the first one, and opens with, I gotta say... I know I talk shit about Ben Robb sometimes, but some very sweet narration. The snarling woman with the claws is Lady Deathstrike. She is a cyborg, a human being whose flesh has been augmented by the grafting of artificial limbs and cybernetic intelligence. Such a procedure is so grueling an ordeal to endure, most don't survive the transformation. The few resilient ones who do, however find themselves metamorphosed like unto gods among men. Prick them, and they do not bleed. Beat them down, and they simply rise up again. In short, they cannot be stopped. They are relentless, ruthless, and when it comes to this particular cyborg, death be a lady tonight. Da-da-na-na-na-na-na! From here on out, the rest of the miniseries is a musical. God, I wish it was. That would make it better. I bet Domino knows how to tap dance. She seems like someone who would. Probably. I bet Cable taught her. He's the best at everything. Like Batman. Cable is weirdly easy to picture doing, like, old-school soft shoe. I know, right? He looks good in a suit, too, so, you know. I love this solemn, dramatic narration that just turns into a song reference, or at least the phrase that that song is referencing that's the title in a big cool font on the two-page spread that is the next page turn. It's fun. I like that kind of contrast in comics. So Deathstrike and Domino duel. Ooh, alliteration. Uh, Complete with Domino making Ghost in the Shell references about Lady Deathstrike, which I appreciate. And here we see what often happens when Domino's in fights. 
despite her skill as a hand-to-hand combatant, she often gets in over her head. And Lady Deathstrike is super badass. Like, her whole job is to murder people with her cyborg parts. She's very good at it. But as Domino loses more and more and more, her luck eventually kicks in, and when Deathstrike knocks some explosives out of Domino's hand, they ricochet improbably all around the room to land right under Deathstrike's feet and to slightly blow her up. That's really fun. Like, Domino's powers, I don't know, I mean, we see other characters with luck powers in the Marvel Universe. I, of course, think Longshot. I love Longshot. But Domino's powers are different. Like, she keeps sort of bouncing back and forth, pinballing back and forth between bad luck and good luck, and the whole deal is that the last thing that happens is always enough good luck to sort of push the whole conflict into a net positive, and that's fun. She's got very, very Rube Goldberg powers in terms of how they work. She's she's very much... Her powers actually remind me in general a lot of the way that Longshot's powers are portrayed in the Longshot miniseries. The second Longshot miniseries. Oh, you mean Longshot saves the Marvel Universe? Yeah. So Domino flees the explosion. She doesn't walk away from it. She runs away from it. Like, way to be practical, Ms. Well, Thurman. She, she leaps elegantly away from it, as one does in a comic book. It looks pretty cool grabbing her ex's copy of The Inferno as she goes, and she leaps right into a flashback. And this works visually very, very well. We talked about the sort of skimpy secret agent outfit she's wearing right now, and in the flashback, she has much shorter, much neater hair. She's wearing a very professional-looking black-and-white security officer's uniform. Like, it really does get across just how much Domino has changed between then and now, and as it turns out, how much her relationship with Milo Thurman, who she met back then, presumably was responsible for changing her. Aw, she cares after all. Yeah, I mean, mainly she was very grumpy back then, because her job was to guard this guy. We mentioned Milo Thurman's deal, everyone thinks he has powers, in fact he doesn't, he's just really good at sort of looking at history, looking at the past, looking at the present, and figuring out logically what will therefore happen. And apparently, after doing a whole bunch of successful gambling using those techniques, he tried to bust into a government database, was caught, and was essentially imprisoned and forced to work for them in exchange for presumably avoiding worse punishment. And back then, he was very flirtatious. He always referred to her as Beatrice, who is, of course, the sort of a vision of beauty in Dante's Inferno. Wasn't Beatrice Dante's wife? Well, Beatrice, she, she, wasn't, she wasn't his wife. She, her, her identity has never been absolutely solidly, um, solidly locked down. We just know that she is a lady upon whom Dante was sweet. Okay. Well, Domino is definitely the object of Milo's affection, hence him calling her Beatrice, and in fact, when she complains about that name, he gives her the name Domino, so he has named her twice. And it kind of works. As grumpy as she is, as professional as she is, he's a charming dude, and they end up sharing champagne, talking, getting to know each other, and it's actually really sweet. Like, I genuinely like them together. I am a sucker for stories where... Someone who's just very emotionally open and earnest kind of breaks through the icy exterior as someone who's, you know, emotionally walled up. Like, that's just a fun trope, and I think it's handled very well in this comic. Once I started associating the story with Raising Arizona, I couldn't stop. Oh shit, you're not wrong! Okay, so is Domino's Womb a barren place where no seed would find fruit or whatever it was? I'm not sure. That's a great movie. I should see it again. 
they unfortunately do not get to steal a baby together. And um, next thing we see is is back in the present, um, Milo uh, being put through some sort of horrible techno process to download his mind into a cyborg body and kill him. Um, this is being done by Skullbuster of the Reavers. So before we get to more Reaver stuff, can we just take a second and talk about the way Milo is drawn? Because I really like it. Sure. So he's referred to as Rasta by a lot of the characters, mostly the villains. Um, although I think Domino calls him the Rastafarian. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's got dreadlocks. He's a black man. But I just appreciate that David Perrin's art doesn't draw all male characters looking the same, all female characters looking the same. Like, he actually has really distinctive features, looks unique, genuinely has features that are associated with black folks. Like, it's really cool to see not just the same template with a different color palette applied in a comic. He's also not insanely ripped in the way that was the default for every dude no matter what in comics at this point. Yeah, for real. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's still more muscular than, like, either of us by a damn sight, but he's not, you know, cable. Few are. Well, no, at this point in comics, not few are. Many are, but... (laughs) Yup. But yeah, this is Skullbuster, one of the old-school Reavers uh, working on Milo, Last we saw Skullbuster, he was very much dead. Ford shot him with an anti-reaver gun he built uh, right after Destiny was killed by Legion on Muir Island. Reavers always come back. I feel like that's one of the ongoing lessons of X-Men. Like, Reavers never, ever, 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 ever die for good. I know, right? I just feel bad for the second Skullbuster, Scylla Markham. Like, she went to all the trouble to get cyborgized for, I don't know, revenge or whatever, and then the first one just comes back. Come on, first Skullbuster, give Scylla a chance. You think she had to change her name? Yeah, probably to something really generic. Like, she just became Headpuncher. Well, they, they all have to have skeleton names, right? Yeah, that's true. What would be another good skeleton name she could take? Is she a tuberosity kicker? Ooh, I like that. It's, you know, a bit of a mouthful, but, uh, intimidating. Coracoid process smasher. Okay, okay. You got a third? Oh, uh, let me think. Pezanserinus liquidator. Have you heard my new band, Pezanserinus liquidator? We're terrible. I would hope so. Anyway, the first, more boringly named Skullbuster is working for a shadowy figure in a fuchsia cloak. Okay, fuchsia cloak, fuchsia cloak... There are two characters I can think of with fuchsia cloaks. Magneto. That's a fuchsia cape. It's an important distinction. Oh. Hmm. That leaves, let's see, Donald Pierce. Mm Mm-hmm. Wills has a fuchsia cloak. Fantasia, from the original Mutant Liberation Front. But, uh, as cool as her character design was, and as cool as her personality looked like it was gonna be, uh, no, she's, she's not around. This is a 90s male silhouette. It is, in fact, Donald Pierce, a member of the old inner circle of the Hellfire Club, who got cyborgized and eventually killed by Trevor Fitzroy's reprogrammed Sentinels in Uncanny Number 281. So, I guess they both got rebuilt. Yep. Uh, in fact, it's actually kind of cool when Skullbuster makes fun of Milo for calling out for Beatrice in his uh, in his agony. Pierce points out that when he rebuilt Skullbuster, Skullbuster's first word was mother. Um, I actually do really like the way this comic handles how horrifying being cyborgized is in the Marvel Universe, at least through this type of method. Like, it genuinely is effective in that regard. So, 
Domino, having having made her way here, breaks in and sets a time bomb when suddenly she is attacked by a hairless, fleshless uh, Lady Deathstrike, complete with robot tits. So remember how I said there was there was there was a moment where I just sort of went fuck no in terms of sexualization in this comic. This would be it: the robot tits. Yeah, like her skull and face and back are human fleshy, and the rest of her is just that banded metal that you see all the time, like with Colossus or Cyber or whoever, including her very well-formed robot breasts. Well, as everyone knows, breasts are a fundamental part of the skeleton, which is why skeletons all have enormous tits. Mmm, skeletal honkers. Skeletal gazongas. Right, so when she was when she was rebuilt, when she was cyborgized, and they, they generally, you know, rebuilt her skeleton with adamantium, that's what they w- would have done. This this obviously fits the ship. No, this is stupid. This is stupid, and I am more weirded out by Lady Deathstrike being sexualized than I am by most characters being sexualized, which is saying something. Yeah, because she's a super tragic character, and the sort of violation of her physical form that she submits to for the purpose of revenge is... It's supposed to be horrifying. Well, she's also just not a very sexual character. That's not part of her presentation. That's not part of how she presents or interprets herself. And she's she leans very heavily into identifying as and is is generally portrayed as monstrous. Which isn't to say that monstrous and sexual are mutually exclusive, but um, in her case, they're they're ends of a continuum um, in which she places herself much more firmly at one than at the other. Agreed, yeah. Like, the fact that she has such a low-cut V thing in her armor really, I think, just serves to make her look more monstrous. Like, that seems to be the point, by comparison. So, I made the mistake, trying to remember what Lady Deathstrike is supposed to look like under her armor, of going back to Uncanny X-Men number 205. That was the story Wounded Wolf, drawn by Barry Windsor Smith, where we see her transformation into Lady Deathstrike and the transformation of the aforementioned Hellfire goons into Reavers. Oh, buddy, buddy, you pulled an overdrawn at the memory bank, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I put a good movie in my crappy movie. Because in that issue, Barry Windsor Smith draws her so effectively. Like, her flesh is just compromised with these different colored cables and circuits and pistons and spines. Like, her very act of physically being looks painful. It looks uncomfortable. It looks dehumanizing. And it's so effective and then here we have robot tits. So she and Domino fight again, and this time Lady Deathstrike basically wins. She manages to beat Domino and hold her in place as the countdown ticks down and the bomb finally explodes, and Domino wakes up in the Weapon X bunker with Pierce gloating over her. Which brings us to Domino number three, Hard Luck, with again the same creative team as the first two. Donald Pierce is still torturing Milo. He is specifically using a scary techno machine to try to download all of Milo's memories into a cyborg body to rewire his mind, which coincidentally will actually kill Milo's physical form, leaving only a robotic simulacrum of Milo completely under Pierce's control. Domino apparently is to be next, but first she gets choked, and have you noticed that she gets choked, like, a lot in this series, like, to the extent that it becomes kind of uncomfortable and fetishy? You know, I wrote that down as well, and, like, the last two instances weren't even that far apart. Deathstrike chokes her with her robot arms, and then 
if you, you know, just look at the series as a whole, only a few pages later, Donald Pierce turns his arm into a robot tentacle and chokes her. And she comments on how she can't breathe and stuff each time and she's starting to black out. It is shockingly similar from time to time. Get you a gorget, lady. For real. So, we also find out why Pierce is alive. After his apparent death in Uncanny X-Men 281, he was rescued and repaired by Fitzroy, who I guess handed him off to Lady Deathstrike based on the tiny silhouette in the background, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I had assumed it was actually Bastion, who of course is really big at this point, you know, being the person behind Operation Zero Tolerance and the next big villain. Okay, that silhouette definitely has breasts. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Bastion was in a, a different form, or maybe the art and the writing were uh, somewhat at odds, because Pierce does mention that he was reprogrammed for a new purpose given the current political climate, which really implies, like, anti-mutant shit going on, which really implies Bastion. Or I guess maybe Graydon Creed, but Creed didn't have that kind of technology. And he will end up working for Bastion much, much, much later in the Utopia era, but I, I don't think he does until then. No, it's just left, like so many other things in the mid to late 90s, ambiguous and unaddressed. We do, however, get a flashback panel of Pierce being reassembled from a skeleton, which is extremely silly. Just see the bone tits on that skeleton? The adamantium-covered bone tits? Everywhere. Hundreds of them. Mmm. The most important part of a cyborg. No, this isn't a Guy Davis series. Guy Davis does draw some monsters with some genitals and breasts all over him sometimes, doesn't he? Yeah, and they're actually fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, listeners, if you haven't read the comic The Marquee that Jay worked on an edition of, um, you, you should. I did, yeah. It's it's really fantastically good. But there's at least one monster who's basically, like, made of boobs in it. Um, and completely unsexualized, because, again, Guy Davis is fantastic. He also did a lot of the monster designs for Pacific Rim. And the upcoming Pinocchio. Oh shit, really? Yeah. Yeah, he was he was one of the um production designers. I guess I'm seeing Pinocchio then. Milo is trying his best while being tortured to convince Pierce to let Domino go, but Pierce is bent on making her a reaver, and also his neck is stretchy now. Um it's it's really a lot funnier than I think it's supposed to be. Oh yeah, like, I know it's supposed to make him look all inhuman and scary and monstrous, but he just extends his his neck like he's fucking Mecha Neck from He-Man. Like he's fucking E.T. from the old E.T. Atari game trying to escape a pit. You know, the game that was so bad that they buried all the copies of it in New Mexico. It is a silly, silly thing, and I just keep imagining it having this sort of like sound effect every time it happens. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to need to go back a second. It was so bad they buried all the copy copies of it in a pit in New Mexico? Well, they made, like, a shit ton of copies because they thought it was going to sell incredibly well, but the video game industry crashed at this point, like, so much so that a lot of people thought it was never, ever coming back. And so they had just hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of the E.T. Atari game, and they didn't know what to do with them, so they just bulldozed them into a pit and buried them, but then, like, souvenir hunters were trying to dig them up, and so then they just filled the entire area with concrete so nobody could... I may be getting some details wrong, but I think that's the gist of it. This is a famously terrible game. I never had the misfortune of playing it, but but I kind of want to. Like, can a game really be that bad? I'm intrigued. 
so bad that they had to bury it in concrete. This is some radioactive waste type disposal. Like, did they put up a sign saying this is not a place of honor? (laughs) They should. Nothing of value is buried here. Well, anyway, we, uh, we get some more backstory that has nothing to do with E.T. as far as I know. Uh, yes, back when Milo was initially imprisoned, someone leaked to AIM, to Advanced Idea Mechanics, those are the uh, token mad scientists of the Marvel Universe, um, that the United States had an AI capable of predicting the future, and AIM busted in to steal it and found Milo instead. Fortunately for Milo, Domino was there to Kool-Aid man her way through a wall and kick a bunch of ass, but she apparently died in the process. And I really like Milo's narration in this flashback. Because like like I said, Milo narrates a ton. And in a final moment of clarity, I realized that I was looking at a moment in time that held historical significance for the future. Maybe not for the future of the world at large, but to her future. My future. Our future. I love it when powers get personal. I mean, okay, I know that Milo doesn't technically have powers, but for the purposes of this story, he effectively does. X-Books do that so, so well. Like, having some kind of grand power just be a metaphor. That's what the X-Books do. They turn powers into metaphors. And that works so well for Milo right here. Like, I am so invested in this couple that we know almost nothing about. Their story is not told thoroughly. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's told well, but I love the concept of them. And it makes me sad that, like, I don't know, we didn't get to see more of that. That This miniseries didn't focus more on the good stuff or wasn't, you know, just better done in general, I guess. This is also where we get the implication that they were married. Domino refers to him in this scene as her husband, but it's in scare quotes. But we know that she goes by his last name later, so jury's out. That said, um, she they they she does not say I love you at any point, and it seems like he's about to when she apparently dies. And I love the fact that throughout this miniseries, her response to uncomfortable conversations about feelings is to blow up buildings and fake her death. It's like a summer's leaving for Alaska and or Hawaii. Yeah, but also the blowing up the building part. Like, she does this twice. It's much more thorough that way. So anyway, anyway, Lady Deathstrike and Skullbuster drag Domino off to reeve her up. Step one of the reaver process is apparently a tub full of acid, and from there I guess they put her in a cybernetic exoskeleton. And I don't really get why the acid is necessary, but you know what? Sure, fine, let's let's get on with it. They talk about it like it's some kind of a bonding agent. I don't know, maybe it's like uh, putting cornstarch on your skin before you get into really tight clothing. It just works better that way. It would be the reverse of that if it were a bonding agent. No. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's to avoid chafing regardless. Nobody likes to chafe, not even a reaver. Maybe that's why they're so unpleasant. Maybe they're just—maybe it's just nonstop chafing. Oh, man. Yeah, it turns out they're actually very nice, sweet people, but this just puts them in a terrible mood all the time and then murder. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Now, obviously, Domino escapes, uh, takes out Lady Deathstrike and Skullbuster, and wrenches the big scary gun off what was to be her exoskeleton. It's genuinely badass. Like, as Milo's about to be fully cyborgized, as he's about to die, she just blows a hole in the wall and just comes in amid the wreckage and rubble and dust uh, that she's created, holding her giant super soaker-looking Gatling guns with a serious expression on her face. Like, well done, that page. Overall, I really like the art in this series. Like, yes, I could go with a couple fewer robot breasts, 
But aside from that, like, Domino genuinely looks really cool. The villains look really intimidating. All the characters look notably unique, not just carbon copies of each other. But on the other hand, robot tits. No sky is so blue that it doesn't contain robot tits. So Domino shows up, she blows up Pierce, but alas, it is too late for Milo, and she still can't bring herself to say I love you back to him. So she blows up the building and fakes her own death again. But before that, she hesitates and then just says, I know, like she's fucking Han Solo, which I think actually really works as a parallel for her. She's got a heart of gold, she feels things deeply, and she doesn't ever show anyone. Like, that's Domino. She's the Han Solo of X-Force. She is way too competent to be Han Solo. Okay, that's a really good point. She's very good at things, and Han Solo is, I mean, he's good at flying, but that's mostly it. He is a lucky dumbass. He is a lucky dumbass. He's actually not even very lucky. I mean, overall, in the end. Okay, maybe not at the very end, now that I think about it. But before she can blow things up, Pierce somehow manages to complete the download, but then he gets blown up, so I don't know whether he's supposed to be alive or not at this point. I mean, I know he'll be back, and I don't think Milo Thurman will be mentioned again again in regards to Pierce's story, so I think we'll just chalk this up to it being the late 90s and another plot thread being dropped. So back at Carnival, we get a brief epilogue in which Domino broods and reads Dante's Inferno until Puck shows up in the outfit Pico was wearing for some goddamn reason. Um, and after after unmasking himself and being like, no, no, you don't have to kick me in the face repeatedly, it's cool, he gives her a brief pep talk, and that, as they say, is that. So there we go. We got a brief glimpse into Domino's past, into her emotional state. I don't know that we know much more about her, but again, I feel like there is this skeleton of an excellent story within this okay story. We just, we just don't get to see it. What we get a lot of are her feelings about Cable, or her potential long-term feelings about Cable, that she and Cable might at some point be at a point close to where she and Milo were, but they're not yet, there yet, but she could see them being there someday, and she might need to learn to talk about her feelings before then, but she might not. Yeah, in this series, she is very much defined by her romantic connections to men, both Milo yeah. and Cable. That's absolutely true. Which, good as, as she and Milo are, is a little bit frustrating for her first solo series. So here's what I would do, because I think the romantic elements are actually some of the strongest elements of this miniseries. Give some context. Give some context for why she is so reluctant, so resistant to open up, why she keeps, you know, blowing up buildings and faking her death as soon as she gets close to somebody by giving us a little bit more of her background. We don't even need to have the details. You can just hint strongly at it. Some kind of family trouble, some kind of shadowy government agency that did bad things to her. You know, maybe even a greater loss she had before, although that might be redundant with a Milo thing. But give us some stuff about Domino herself, independent of romantic connections, that explain why she is this way in romantic situations. Then it still stays about her as an individual, not just about her as someone's potential romantic partner. Oh, I hard disagree with that. Really? Yeah, I, I, I think that, that, like, the only thing that could be more cliched than making it about a romantic relationship and interest is making it about a romantic relationship and interest and unpacking past trauma. Um, I think, I think that having her, I, you know, I think, I think her relationship to her love interest in this, as much as, as I'm a little frustrated that it's, it's, about a romantic relationship is much, much more typical of male heroes in miniseries. Like their relative roles in the story and their relative roles in the romance. 
And that's an inversion that I really appreciated. I thought made it a lot more interesting. And I also really chafe at the notion that everything needs to be the result of trauma and all trauma needs to be narratively unpacked. I think that double expectation is one that creates more bad fiction than good. And that may be true. It could just be that that's what I'm used to, you know, reading a ton of superhero comics. That's such a common trope. And when it's done well, I really like it. Uh, But yeah, maybe that's something that is a little overdone. I don't know. So speaking of common tropes in superhero comics, you've got questions and an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, what's your favorite comic that is generally unliked by most others? Oh, that's a good question. And a hard one, because here's the thing, no run is fully loved or hated, even Chuck Austin's run. And with X-Men fans, I think that's even more the case, because X-Men fans are passionate, and they attach to all kinds of stuff. But there are a few series that certainly got their share of criticism, or a few events, a few stories. And the first one that I'm thinking of is one we've mentioned a number of times, the Age of X-Men event. It seems to have been mostly forgotten, mostly disregarded, but it was great. I mean, yes, it was a retread of Age of Apocalypse in some ways. It was another alternate universe where we got to see alternate versions of characters where they were very different in some regards. But it's also a surreal and dreamlike world with a mystery around why it is the way it is, which Age of Apocalypse very much was not. And since it was so tightly focused on one alternate universe team of X-Men, and the geographic setting they're in is very deliberately limited and contained, the event can really focus on those characters and their dynamics in a way that Age of Apocalypse, as great as it was, couldn't necessarily always do. I thought that event was freaking great. You know what? I enjoy the hell out of Mutant X, and I refuse to apologize for that. Oh man, the alternate universe series by Howard Mackey that spins out of his X-Factor run where, like, Havoc is the nexus of all realities and Bloodstorms in it? Yes, that one. I've never actually read that run. Like, not at all. Like, Jay, you know my taste pretty well. Do you think I would like it? Yes. Good enough for me. On the list it goes. It's fun. It's so fucking angsty. I do like angst, and Alex Summers is so good at angst. And it features one of the very few well-adjusted Cyclopses in the multiverse. Oh, well done, that Scott in particular. He's a space pirate. Okay, now I'm extra sold. Uh, Speaking of Scott Summers, albeit a different one, the time-displaced original five X-Men that were brought into the present by Beast in Brian Bendis' run a number of years ago, a lot of people got so tired of that plotline And I expected I would, but I never did. Like, there were a full three runs, if I'm counting correctly, about those time-displaced original five X-Men, and they were all super engaging. Like, the characters contrasted well with their older selves, who were also around for the most part. They had new dynamics with each other that the original, original five didn't. The characters went in new directions. They interacted with the Marvel Universe at large. Like, Cyclops was on the Champions, had a relationship with Bloodstorm. That was good shit. I will stand up for every single little bit of it. See, everything with Bloodstorm is good. You're right. Bloodstorm does connect those two series. Now I extra, extra, extra have to read Mutant X. But, you know, going back to that, I actually generally very much dug most of Bendis' time at the helm, and I I don't know that it's necessarily generally unliked, but it was definitely pretty controversial. It was, yeah. that, That run had its large share of detractors. I know the way that Iceman's coming out was handled, for instance, was extremely controversial. 
But I mean, in general, I think I think Bendis is one of those writers whose voice is so present and so central in his comics that if you like Bendis books, you like the books he does, and if you don't, you don't. Yeah. And it happens that I do. <laughs> Fair. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, In an alternate universe where you ran the X-Line, if a meddling Marvel exec told you that you can still have teams and an ensemble cast, but the X-Men need a clear main character who provides the default point of view, who would you pick? Totally, totally depends on where they were narratively. Um, Different point of view characters are going to work differently for different stories and genres, and I would definitely want that choice to be story-led. Okay, but if you had to pick, like, one default character who was just going to shepherd the line, who was going to appear more than other characters, who was going to be central to some extent in every book, if you had no choice in the matter, if you were thus contained, what do you think? Because I'm feeling contrary right now, I'm going to say Polaris. Oh shit, that's a really good choice. She's a little bit on the outside, but she has a very strong personality. She's flawed and conflicted, but passionate and smart. She's got connections to pretty much everyone without necessarily being too intertwined with anyone. That's a really good answer. Well done. What about you? Oh, man. So I do love Kitty and Jubilee and the Evolution Kids as point-of-view characters for the animated pilot and subsequent two cartoons. That works really well. But I don't know that you could have a character like that represent the entire line, every book with every theme. They just don't have the experience. They don't have the history. So initially I was thinking, well, Storm, she's maybe the best X character, but I think she's almost too good. She would solve everyone's problems way too easily, like Peter Corbeau or something. So I think I'm going to go with Nightcrawler. Kurt fits in almost any setting and theme with his varied history and personality facets. His power is really versatile. Uh, Cy Spurrier, I think, has been doing a great job of getting that across in his Way of X and Legion of X series. So yeah, I'm going to say Kurt. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So take it away, angry Claremontian narrator. Okay, so uh, Drew616, I do appreciate the team spirit you're showing. Or maybe timeline spirit? I don't know. Anyway, either way, A for effort. For execution, on the other hand, look... I know you want to impress Robin Scully and all, but have you ever considered that they might benefit from a role model who isn't just enthusiastically terrible? And speaking of the enthusiastically terrible, the microphone here goes to Donald Pierce. Roberto Garcia, you have the honor of being prepared for an upload of your consciousness into a perfect cyborg form. No longer will you be bound by the decaying prison of your own flesh, or by its physical limitations. Look at me. I can... Raise my head really high in this extendo neck, and... I can lower it back down, and then I can just dramatically whisper, but you can still hear me. Do not resist. The pain will be momentary, but the upgrade? Eternal. And now, soon to be cyborg siblings. I believe my colleague Spiral spoke of the potential of such a pair. Jared and Victoria, your skin shall be steel, your mind shall be circuitry, and your necks shall extend. Immortality awaits. 
being a cyborg is pretty much the best. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music and has a relatively normally length neck. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, we give in to despair. Alongside Juggernaut and Generation X.